The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a priest member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Much better. Thank you, Tom. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks Good. for being here. I'm glad to hear Father, I have been uh, diligently working through the email inbox over the last couple weeks. We had... Uh, accumulated quite the stash of emails in, yeah. uh, in our email account. I believe it was uh, well over 200 emails we had in there, but uh, we've slowly been working through those together and we are now down to uh, somewhere around 60 emails left yeah. in our inbox. So uh, yeah. well, we let's are... take care of those tonight then. <laughs> All 60 of them. Here yeah. we go. But no, I, I thought we could get through uh, at least some of them tonight, Father. Yeah. And I'd like to start with one that uh, references a recent program where we talked about an email we received from a uh, kind of a conservative-minded Nova Sordo woman who uh, who was commenting on your traditional Catholics in the adult mass video and mm -hmm. she uh, she was saying how she she preferred to remain in the Nova Sordo and try and affect uh, good changes in the Nova Sordo and lead the Nova Sordo back to uh, the traditional ways and this uh, this email that we received from a viewer says that he had a, a very similar experience he was a conservative-minded Nova Sordoite and uh, his story here, I thought it was, was fascinating to read through this, Father. He says that I was attending a local diocesan, quote, traditional, extraordinary form of the Mass. I also had very similar hopes and aspirations that we could be a force for change from within by example. However, it had more and more over the years occurred to me that whereas I have but a short time to live and worship and be an example to my children, the liberals who usurp the Catholic Church hierarchy have centuries to ultimately push their agenda over many generations. They get to play the long game, and they know it. Every generation who attends any Mass at these liberal Novus Ordo parishes, extraordinary form, indult, or new Novus Ordo Mass, will inevitably become somewhat more open to the liberal changes as a natural consequence of a slow breaking down of resistances over long periods of time. If you show up at all to these Novus Ordo parishes, you risk being poisoned by the general environment, and every generation going forward will inevitably be a little more malleable to the liberalism than the one before. The final straw for me that made me see this with crystal clarity was not too long ago while attending a, quote, traditional Latin Mass at a diocesan church. The priest during the sermon first mentioned the wonderful spirit of Vatican II in a very positive sense, and then he had the audacity to quote the words of Pope Francis. With that, I got up and left and have not been back since. The simple reality that any true Catholic desiring to change the Novus Ordo Church from within needs to really understand is that it is much more likely you and your family will be the ones changed over the long term of exposure to liberal poison that you will inevitably be exposed to while attending any of the Novus Ordo parishes. And people should not kid themselves. That is the only reason why the, quote, traditional Mass is even offered at all at this point by the Vatican II cult. Thank you for all you do, and God bless. Father, what's your take on that email? It seems to me to be... I agree. Uh, he, it's well said. Yeah. From his own experience, he, he saw that the tendency, of course, is to be liberalized and modernized, be, to be influenced by them. And because to attend there, one has to make continual compromises to begin with. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, to, to, to make compromise the standard operating procedure of your, of your life, your, your faith, the practice of your religion, is deadly, especially with modernism especially with the modernists. And so I agree totally with what he's saying. And he said, well, my point, actually, expect yeah. to say, in some ways he expressed it better than I did, that you cannot remain within the Novus Ordo and practice the traditional faith and expect all to be well. Mm -hmm. uh, because the Novus Ordo is the antithesis of the traditional Catholic faith, because the Novus Ordo is based upon modernism. And uh, as St. Pius X said, modernism is the synthesis of all heresies. And it doesn't mean that anyone who imbibes principles of modernism immediately becomes an apostate, but over time, the faith is eroded and ultimately destroyed. 
And I, I thought it was a great point to make how uh, the liberals, you know, they're they're in this for the long run, and they're mm-hmm. they're they're perfectly willing to you know kind of draw this out and do whatever mm-hmm. it takes, even if it's generations or centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're willing to put well, in work. Uh, you know, he's expressing that in a good way. Uh, the the permanent instruction of the Ultima Dita of the Masons, right. which was found in the Masonic lodges in uh, northern Italy. Okay. And was actually published at the order of Pope Pius IX, and again by Pope Leo the Thirteenth. It has the Masons laying out a plan for this. What they want is the infiltration of the Church, and the writer of the of that instruction to his Masonic followers. Uh, he uses the name Nubius, as is known to Gare, is or known to Plume, if you want to call it. Either way, that's his code name. And uh, this man is saying, it will not be the work of a generation, it will go on for generation after generation after generation. Our work of infiltrating the church is something that is going to take a long time. We have to work at this very carefully, slowly, and uh, cautiously, so we don't trip any alarms. And so what this gentleman is saying is exactly the same thing. He recognized the liberal, modernist, uh, progressivist, leftist, whatever you want to call it, they're all bedfellows. Their plan is the long term, as Satan's plan. Satan's plan is the short term for each individual soul, but for the church, which is immortal, he has a long term plan. And this is what they're about right now, is fulfilling that long term plan. So he warns those who would be unwittingly part of that plan of the danger that they're in. Mm-hmm. All right, um, another email, Father, along uh, similar, similar lines here. It's from a viewer who says, Directly after listening to your show on the Indult Mass, I had the chance to speak with a family member who now attends an Indult or sometimes the SSPX Mass. He believes that the Pontificate of Francis has caused a backlash within the Catholic community so powerful that it will bring about the renewal of the faith as it once was. He says the new rites of ordination in the Novus Ordo Mass is valid but harmful and that people will just walk away from it and the church will be restored. He feels that the modernists are dying out and that within 50 years it will all be back to normal because the youth recognize the true faith. He also criticized my use of the term indult as antiquated and incorrect. It's just the mass, he said. Please give me your thoughts on this theory and what, if anything, can be said in response to this. Well, if anything, his terminology is is faulty because it's not referred to as the mass by the Novus Ordo. It's called the extraordinary form as though it's something exceptional. Not the rule, but the exception. That's what they've labeled the 1962 Latin liturgy. So he's got to face that fact that the liturgy that he attends in the Novus Ordo is is called the extraordinary form by way of the fact that it is not their norm. It's not their normal standard form of worship. It's it's permitted only as a a privilege now. but I think he's living in fantasy land. I really do think he's imagining that this is going to turn out well. Uh, I agree that there is a certain backlash against Francis. I do agree with that because he's so egregious in his denials and his attacks on the traditional Catholic faith. There's no doubt about that. The fact that there's this, this large tidal wave of, uh, of, of souls now who are turning away from the Novus Ordo and want to come streaming back to the traditional uh, faith and the traditional Catholic religion well, I, I see there's a, an increase in the number of people who are attending the traditional masses, uh, the, the Society of St. Pius V. I imagine if you talked to the um, a clergy of the Fraternity of St. Peter and the Society of St. Pius X, they would tell you the same thing. I imagine they would say, yes, Francis is driving so many people away from the Novus Ordo, that they are making their way back, many of them are making their way back to the traditional Catholic pews. Uh, But uh, I'm afraid that that whole effort is being thwarted by people like uh, this Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, who actually raised the question of whether or not God uh, would allow a, a pope to be a heretic and still be the pope. And his answer is yes. Contrary to what St. Francis de Sales says, I imagine, contrary uh, to what other great Catholics, St. Robert Bellarmine has said, uh, he insists, no, that, that, that can be, we can have a pope who's a heretic and still be the pope. Well, what that comes down to is a question of, does the pope have to be a Catholic? Yes. Does the pope have to be a Catholic? 
And he says, well, really, no. The Pope doesn't have to be a Catholic. Now, this is the ultimate expression of ecumenism. Yeah. And here, it is, here he is, a would-be traditional, quote-unquote, Catholic, right? But he's, he's so desperately trying to, to, to somehow salvage a papacy for Francis, beyond doubt, uh, that Francis is the Pope, the whole Pope, and nothing but the Pope, and you can't dare question that he is the Pope, that he's coming to these conclusions which are actually modernist and novus ordo. That no, you don't have to be a, a Catholic to be a Pope. I mean, he might as well just go out and say, you could be a Lutheran and be a Pope, a Lutheran in faith and be the Pope. You could, in a sense, I mean, you take it to his reasoning to its conclusions. You could even be a Muslim and be the Pope, be the Pope. You don't have to have the Catholic faith to be a Pope. Now, you and I know that you and I have to have the Catholic faith to be Catholics, right? It's the Church who tells us that. We have to have the Catholic faith to be Catholics. And if we were espousing heresy, that uh, we would not be Catholics, we'd be denounced as not being Catholics, and even before being publicly announced, we would be turned away, you know, because of our heresy and the public scandal we were given. But with Francis, it doesn't hold. That doesn't apply to him. Why? Because, as uh, Peter Kwasniewski would say, well, he's the Pope. So he doesn't really have to have the Catholic faith to be Pope. Uh, Kwasniewski might say, well, he has to have the Catholic faith to be Catholic, but he doesn't have to, have to have to have the Catholic faith. He doesn't have to be a Catholic to be Pope, though. Uh, the only thing that would make him not Pope is if, uh, even though he might personally deny the faith, as long as he doesn't try to um, proclaim heresy ex cathedra, he doesn't really have to believe anything. Uh, if you take him at his word, you might say, well, he doesn't have to believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ and the Blessed Sacrament. He doesn't have to believe even in the Incarnation. He doesn't even have to believe in God. As long as he doesn't Pro, try to ex cathedra uh, pronounce that as a doctrine of faith. That's he's still the pope. I mean, I imagine I don't know. I mean, if I asked Peter Kwasniewski, well, would he still be a Catholic? I don't know what he'd say. He might say, well, no, he wouldn't be a Catholic if he denied these things. We say, okay, but you're saying he'd still be the pope. Well, as long as he doesn't try to proclaim these things at cathedra, he would still be the pope. You see the nonsense they're getting to here. And I'm afraid what the gentleman is saying in, in his letter, he's overlooking the errors that are coming in from those. And the, the modernist errors that these, these would-be conservative Nova Serra Catholics have to, have to resort to in order to justify the dilemma they, they're setting up for England. Yes, he's a heretic. No, he doesn't have the faith. Yes, he's still the Pope, and we have to regard him as the Pope and respect him as the Pope. Uh, as long as he doesn't try to pronounce the heresies ex cathedra, uh, there is a... <laughs> inevitably, that's going to lead them to some, some serious errors against the faith. And what I'm afraid of is those who are reacting to Francis are not necessarily being driven back to practice the traditional Catholic religion and embracing the traditional Catholic faith. I'm afraid those who are being driven away by Francis might wind up in some kind of a tertium quid, like a, a third thing that is neither... Francis and his and his Novus Ordo, or the traditional Catholic, the actual traditional Catholic faith, and the practice of the traditional Catholic religion, that they're going to come up with something in the middle, which uh, has elements of both mixed in. So I think this gentleman is is making a, a, gr a grave mistake in thinking this is all going to kind of kind of work out because of the reaction against Francis. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd think that those who saw the changes coming in early, soon after Vatican II would have reacted and returned to the traditional Catholic religion. No. Many people just left the church. Some of them went on to become Mormons or whatever. They just lost faith entirely. And I'm afraid, although he might see young people who are asking questions now, and some of them returning, uh, some of them maybe never even were in the, at the traditional Catholics, returning the traditional Mass, and who, maybe they didn't even learn the traditional Catholic catechism in the modernist schools where they went. So maybe some of the people he's seeing are finding the traditional Catholic faith for the first time. But I dare say that for every one of them, there are many who are just losing faith altogether. Either because they're conservative Novus Ordo and they're lost in the, in the maze of the dilemma they faced uh, and set up for themselves between Francis and the traditional teaching of the church, 
or they just lose faith altogether in the, in the church and maybe even our Lord himself. And Father, I mean, we've, we've actually heard from some people who went off and became Muslim over, yeah. over this, just because there's some certitude, at least they think. And, uh, they, well, um, I wish I, I, I wish what he was saying were true, but I don't believe it is. Mm -hmm. I think he's, uh, um, making a grave mistake and thinking that this is the answer. And Father, doesn't this paint a rather sad portrait uh, of the uh, of the Catholic Church. I mean, it's, you know, that we're just kind of patiently waiting, hoping that things are, are going to work out and, and return mm -hmm. back to normal. I mean, isn't the, the Catholic Church supposed to be indefectible? Isn't it supposed to be the, the, the spotless bride of Christ? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it just being reduced to some kind of uh, just poor, pitiable thing where we're just waiting and hoping that things are going to work out and, and hopefully maybe someday, 50 years from now, get back to its original glory. Isn't that a rather sad picture? Of well, it, it does definitely uh, paint the church as being something purely passive and uh, impotent, basically impotent in the face of the, 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 the attacks of Christ, uh, of uh, the attacks of the Antichrist, the attacks of um, the organizations that are anti-Christian. Uh, the... Uh, the plots of the Masons, for example, and so on, the church cannot defend itself. That Satan has somehow crafted a plan which is so diabolically clever that the church is reduced to being absolutely passive and incapable of re responding to this and defending itself. Uh, so we're just left to, to kind of uh, say, oh God, you know, like the apostles in the, in the boat saying, oh Lord, save us, we perish, when our Lord is in the boat. He's asleep in the boat, and they, they needed to have faith. But the, they, they weren't, you know, here they are giving up, saying, Oh, Lord, we're going to, we're going to go down under here unless you, you wake up to save us, as though he had to wake up to save us. So uh, I, I think what you're saying is true. The, the church has been given by our Lord Jesus Christ the necessary means of addressing these issues for the sake of souls. And that's what traditional Catholics are doing. Honest to goodness, traditional Catholics are doing with them. They're not overstepping their bounds, quite the contrary. Well, some of them are, I must say. But, but true traditional Catholics are not overstepping their bounds and doing what they're doing and simply holding on to the traditional faith and continuing to practice the traditional Catholic religion. There are those who would say that we're wrong to do that because we don't have the endorsement of the modernists in the Vatican. But we know that this is not Christ's teaching that we have to go to modernists to have the approval to practice the traditional Catholic faith. We are entitled to do that by virtue of our Catholic baptism. Not only are we entitled to do it, we are required to do it. And no one can actually contradict that, that requirement imposed on us by Christ himself at our baptism. So those who would say, no, all we can do is sit back and wait and let things play out, you know, and, and see, God will give graces where he sees fit. And in the course of time, it'll all come back around again. That's not what Christ himself has told us to do. And that's not what the church, that's not what the church in her sacred tradition is taught. And I think that's a very important point, Tom. If we learn from the church's tradition throughout her history, she never says, well, you know, it's all over. Well, let's just all, you know, uh, face it, you know, and uh, we're, we're just absolutely helpless. The church is just totally helpless in this situation. There's nothing we can do. So we need a, a Deus to come kind of ex machina and, and tell us all, okay, now, you know, nobody knows what to do and I'm going to have to come back and I have to start all over again. That's not what the church did during the Great Western Schism. That's not what the church did during the ba Babylonian captivity of the church. That the, the, there were Catholic faithful who knew what to do by the grace of God. And they did it. And that's exactly what the traditional Catholics are doing right now. Right. All right. Well, Father, next email asks uh, from a viewer who says that he is rather new to the church. And uh, he provides us with a quote from the Catechism of the Council of Trent, uh, which says that the unworthiness of the minister does not invalidate the sacrament. And he says, uh, so while clearly a priest must be validly ordained, how are the sacraments of a of an FSSP or an SSPX priest invalid as long as the essentials uh, are, are followed? So what would you reply to that, Father? <clears throat> well, v validity depends on a number of things. Uh, the validity of a mass depends on a number of things. 
Of course, you have to have the matter in the form of the intention, right? For any sacrament to be valid, right? But a priest needs to be validly ordained. And he would need to be or validly ordained by a validly consecrated bishop. Right? So if you have the Novus Ordo rites of ordination, consecration, if there is a doubt about these things, then there's a certain doubt that necessarily applies here about whether the, the, there's a valid consecration at a mass offered by a priest doubtfully ordained by a doubtfully consecrated bishop. Mm -hmm. Sounds to me that this gentleman uh, just assumes that, that all of these are being valid. All of these being valid, why would you not go to one of these priests? Well, you don't have the certitude. I mean, the Society of St. Pius X is using priests who are not conditionally ordained. It came from the Novus Ordo. We're ordained in the Novus Ordo, and we're not conditionally ordained in the traditional Catholic way. Um, so there are problems with that. Well, obviously, for traditional Catholics, there have got to be problems with that. And um, um, there are other issues with the Fraternity of St. Peter, the same thing. You know, they might, have, they might be ordained with a traditional rite, was the bishop who, who ordained them, was he ordained or consecrated with the traditional rite? That's another issue, uh, which they might not be interested in. I don't know. But it does raise the red flag there. But let's assume that you have a priest who is certainly ordained, and there's no doubt about it. Okay, let's see. you have a, a priest who is ordained in the traditional Catholic rite by a traditional Catholic bishop who himself was ordained and consecrated by a traditional Catholic bishop and so on. So you have that succession of holy orders beyond doubt. Uh, the validity is beyond doubt. And so why would one got not go to his Mass? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas, actually, and the Council of Trent after him, did raise the question. Uh, the Council of Trent, I think he refers to, mm -hmm. right, does say that the unworthiness of the minister doesn't prevent the valid, valid consecration and the validity of the Mass. Yeah which the church has always known. Okay, that's not saying anything new. Um, there were Donatists back in the early days of the church, like in the, in the time of St. Augustine, who would deny that. But the church has pretty roundly established once and for all that the unworthiness of the minister does not invalidate the sacrament. So uh, would there be reasons why a Catholic would not go to a Mass of someone uh, validly ordained? Well, yes. For example... The Church has, in the past, recognized the validity of the Greek Orthodox, or Eastern Orthodox, uh, rite of ordination and the succession of their orders. Nowadays, there's a great mixture here, okay? Nowadays, there's a great mixture between what the Church would have considered valid before and what the Church would have considered invalid before. So, with the Protestants and the Orthodox and the mixing of the two, this is uh, a serious problem, okay? And not only that, but, you know, you look at the Orthodox in communist-held lands, uh, where the Communist Party has been in control, and, um, you know, you have agents of the secret police, the Communist Secret Police, in the clergy, okay? And they are there precisely to spy on the people. Look at what's going on in China right now, and you see the agents are becoming bishops and, and priests, of the Chinese church, with Francis is actually backing up the communist Chi Chinese Communist Party, taking control, naming the bishops, right, and so on, or agents of the of the commu Chinese Communist Party. That's what their bishops are now, and Francis is the one who's actually made the arrangements to have this happen. It is said that the lady whose hand she was slapping there was trying to tell him, please, you know. Uh, Maybe she wasn't accusing him of saying, please don't do this to the Chinese people. But supposedly she was saying, please come to the aid and defense of the Chinese people, the Chinese Catholics. <coughs> so he furiously began smacking her away from him. <coughs> because he is the author of this, uh, this, this travesty, this tragedy. But anyway, the point is when St. Thomas Aquinas addresses the question himself, in the third part, the Paratensia uh, of the Summa Theologica, some refer to as the Summa Theologiae, the summary of all theology. Um, the third part would be question 82, article 9. He talks about the question of attending the masses of excommunicated priests, masses of uh, 
of, uh, let's say, heretical priests, the masses of unworthy priests, let's say, like public sinners. And that's a very interesting article. He does talk about that. And um, he always starts by giving arguments for the wrong answer first, okay? <laughs> and uh, he, the answers he gives there are answers why it's okay to go ahead and attend their Mass. So you know when you start reading this, if his answers initially are, well, yes, it's okay to do that because of this, this, and yes, it's okay to do that, you know his answer is going to be the negative okay. of whatever they're arguing for. Because he says, like said, contra and... and uh, uh, but his um, having given the, the, the rationale for attending the masses of the various kinds of excommunicated, heretical, unworthy priests, public sinner priests, he then goes on to explain why this is not right. It is not acceptable for a Catholic to do this. Uh, it is scandalous, and it actually, in a way, partakes of their own crimes. But he does say this, though. In the second part of the body, the corpus of his answer, he says, however, and this is very important, however, he says, um, with regard to the, the case of, uh, let's say, heretical or uh, an unworthy priest, a minister of the sacrament or offer of the Mass, celebrate the Mass, um, one realizes that although this man may do things that make him subject to divine penalties, until the Church has pronounced a formal, let's say, declaration of his guilt, a Catholic could go to the Mass because it doesn't have the sense that one is publicly defying the moral law and uh, one does not have the certitude of uh, the guilt of the individual until the church has passed sentence. And so, but his point is, once the church has passed sentence and said, yes, the person is guilty of these crimes, clearly you cannot go near them. You cannot attend their masses. Until their sentence passed, yes, it can be justifiable to go and attend and receive the sacraments from them. He does make this exception, though, with regard to a priest who is openly guilty of living in committed or committing fornication or some other terrible sign of uh, impurity, that because these, these crimes are so serious, he said, if it is notorious that the priest is actually engaging in these things, that by all means you must stay away from that. Because you can't even give the appearance of endorsing this or any way justifying it. It's a, it's a horrendous thing, especially because of the serious obligation of the priest to observe chastity by virtue of his, his vows. So, um, you know, St. Thomas takes the hard line on this. He really does. With regard to this question of the church, um, let's say, passing sentence and, um, and uh, issuing a formal declaration that someone is guilty of, let's say, a crime of heresy or schism or adultery, fornication, whatever it may be. Uh, nowadays, we're in kind of an anomalous situation there where they have so many immoral priests and they, since Vatican II, they've been letting so many priests not only commit, in some cases openly commit, sins of impurity with either gender. I mean, you know, and, and actually, well, I don't want to go into detail because it's so sordid, but this, they're notorious for this. The modern church is notorious for this. The modern bishops are notorious for this. So I'd say the notoriety is there. But also because uh, they've been allowing since Vatican II so-called priests like such as Hans Kuhn to openly deny doctrines of the Catholic faith, just openly, flagrantly deny them and mock them. But Francis himself is mocking the traditional teachings of the church in so many ways that this again is something notorious. So I don't think Catholics today need to wait for some declaratory sentence or some pronouncement or some decree from the Vatican. Uh, because they themselves are guilty of the same crimes and are, shepherd, are shielding these things. I mean, we talk about the evil of a bishop uh, shuffling priest abusers around within a diocese from parish to parish or even from diocese to diocese to cover this up. Well, what about the guilt of bishops shuffling heretics, heretical priests around <laughs> who are attacking the faith and attacking not only the faith in the catechism, but attacking the virtue of faith in the souls of the people. And they're shuffling them all around here. 
I mean, the, again, the Novus Ordo Church from Vatican II is notorious for doing these things. So if no, notoriety is the issue, I think the issue is definitely solved that Catholics should not go to priests who notoriously are involved in these things. And don't, don't wait for some kind of decree from the Chancery Office or from the Vatican. Father, would you refuse Holy Communion to someone who went to uh, one of these situations that we're talking about, a, let's say an SSPX or maybe even an FSSP uh, priest who, even if they were uh, certainly validly ordained, um, mm. would you refuse Communion to someone? The, the, the SSPX priest, I would not. Yeah. The FSSP, the Fraternity of St. Peter priest, I wouldn't, or Why? FSP, whatever it is. Why? Because they are formally in union with the Novus Ordo. They are formally part of the Novus Ordo, and they would say so. They de openly declare that. That is the raison d'etre of the FS, the Fraternity of St. Peter, right? Mm -hmm. They claim, look, we can, we're traditional and we're part of the Novus Ordo, okay? We're within the fold, we're approved, and uh, the, the, the Novus Ordo considers us part of them. They don't like it, but here we are, and they have given us approval, somewhat begrudgingly, to say the extraordinary form, right, of, of liturgy, um, and for 20 years they tried not to allow it, but they finally gave in, and here we are, you know, they, they finally let us, ha let it happen, so here we are, and we're, we're the ones doing it. But they, they are definitely part of the Novus Ordo, formally part of the Novus Ordo. And they would tell you that, yes, the Novus Ordo was Catholic, and yes, it's okay to do that. And yes, it's okay to go to the New Mass, receive the New Sacraments, get your marriage annulments, and come back, and we'll give you Holy Communion. Uh, they have to go along with all this stuff. The Society of St. Pius X, although they're trying to get this status within the Novus Ordo, they don't have it. And so they are not formally, formally united with Francis and Rome and the entire, his entire Novus Ordo. Right? In fact, they're still kind of coasting on the, on the will of Archbishop Lefebvre, who created them, uh, the Society, who founded the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, not to be the Novus Ordo, right? Although, uh, again, we, we find what I would consider to be really treasonous uh, uh, plans within the leadership of the Society of St. Pius X against the traditional thing to try to unite with uh, Rome. Uh, I mean, even some of the, the current fraternity, of, uh, I'm sorry, Society of St. Pius X priests have even talked about this. Uh, there are a hundred priests or more who have broken away or been expelled because they objected to it, the, the cozying up of the SSPX with Rome. And there are priests who are with, still with the Society of St. Pius X who accused the leadership of the Society of St. Pius X of going soft on Vatican II and kind of losing their way on that. And um, they haven't yet, uh, they, they haven't actually come out and said, now this is corrected. They just said there's a problem, and this is where it came from. Um, nonetheless, I mean, in spite of all that, I would say they don't, they have not formally reunited with uh, the, the, um, the Vatican and the modernists. Um, they will say, now, now Francis himself has taken certain initiatives to kind of, uh, maybe not get them back under the wing, but maybe a feather, you know, by saying, look, we'll, uh, we'll recognize your marriages as being valid. The local bishop has the prerogative of sending one of his diocesan priests to witness the marriage on our behalf. If he doesn't, we'll let you do it and we'll recognize it as being valid, okay? And the, fraternity, the Society of St. Pius X gratefully accepts this. However, it does raise the question, well, what about all the marriages they do without that? What about all the marriages that have been done for all these years without that? What about them? The fraternity, I'm sorry, the Society of St. Pius X would say, well, there's no question at all. They're, they're valid marriage. And if you ask them, any one of them, well, if Francis had not given that okay, would that have caused a problem for you? Would you be worried about the validity of your marriage? They say, no, our marriages would be valid anyway. And if he redo, withdraw that, withdrew that permission, we would just continue on doing what we've always done, marrying people on our own authority. And we wouldn't have any qualms about the validity. 
Um, I mean, we haven't received that special benefit of Francis's, uh, you know, feather that he drops saying, okay, you can sneak under the feather of our wings here and uh, you can get by with this and we'll approve the validity of your marriage. And yet the Society of St. Pius X priest would not tell you that our marriages are invalid, but theirs are because they have Francis's okay. They would never do that. They would under, that would undercut all the marriages they've been doing for many, many years now. Uh, and they have no doubt that they're valid, with or without Francis's approval. So, in fact, uh, whatever pretensions they're making to the people that, oh, look, we have the approval of the Holy Father in so many ways. Whatever pretensions they're making, you know, oh, look with Francis, you know, when they, when they go to him, look at how faithful and loyal we are. The fact is, they... Uh, this, this is just a show. It's kind of blowing smoke in a way, really. Um, but where there's smoke, there's fire, and there's a worry that people have that they will sell out. And it's not out of the question. Mm -hmm. But right now they haven't yet. They're, they're cozying up to them, and it's, I think it's, it's very worrisome, no doubt about it. I think somewhat scandalous, no doubt about it. Uh, they they offer the the masses that they do saying that they are one in faith with Francis And I don't believe they are I Consider that to be a bold-faced lie if they say they are one in faith in Francis with Francis But I don't believe they they believe the same things Francis does and I don't believe that Francis believes the same thing they do uh, The moment that they say they're one in faith and with Francis and they mean it, is the moment we have to say no, absolutely not. Okay, But even the fact that they're putting that falsehood out there at the altar before consecrating, that's a troubling matter too. That one in faith with Francis business and his local Novus Ordo Bishop. Uh, it's hard to find a way to justify that. One way or the other, it's a problem, right? If they are or they aren't, it's a problem. So again, I, I think the Society of St. Pius X is on very, very shaky and very dangerous ground. But uh, they still formally are not the Novus Ordo. Okay. Uh, Father, why do some Sedificantists use the pre-1955 Holy Week and others the post-1955 version? Well, see, I don't know that any so-called Sedificantists, I don't know that any Sedificantists use the the so-called restored rite of Holy Week after 1955. And, um, I mean, maybe the writer can give us examples of that. Because all of the so-called Sedevacantis, and, and that's a wide range, you know, that's a broad brush, uh, applying to people of many different uh, ideas you know, about the papacy these days. Um, but I don't know any, any of those who would consider themselves Sedevacantists who would be using the reformed or restored so-called Rite of Holy Week from 1955 onward. All of those who are, are that, shall I say, uh, you know, I'm going to say hardline traditional, uh, I don't know how else to put it that way, uh, used the, the old Rite of Holy Week pre-1955. Okay. All right, uh, then next... That I know of, anyway. Next question, Father, deals with the, uh, the words of the long, the original St. Michael, the Archangel Prayer, mm -hmm. and uh, the interpretation of that, uh, the, the passage that the viewer questions is uh, a line that says, In the holy place itself, where has been set up the sea of the most holy Peter in the chair of truth for the light of the world, they have raised the throne of their abominable impiety with the iniquitous design that when the pastor has been struck, the sheep may be scattered. So he asked, Father, what do they mean when, uh, when this prayer says they have raised the throne of their abominable impiety? Does that mean that... Is this uh, one of their, our emails? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so they're asking, since it says they have raised their throne mm -hmm. of abominable impiety. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that that, that, that throne of abominable uh, impiety was already set up? In 1988 or whenever that 18, prayer, 18, 18, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. in the 1880s when Pope, Pius, Pope Leo XIII had the vision, the elocution, yeah. uh, whether it was already an accomplished fact. Mm -hmm. uh, well, one has to go back to the historical context here. Remember St. Pius, or I'm sorry, Pope Leo XIII was writing this prayer, composed this prayer in the, 19, in the 1880s. Yes. 
okay? Uh, Vatican I, the council, had just taken place 10 years before or so, right? And it was during that council, 1869 and 1870, that the Freemasonic uh, mercenary uh, legions of Garibaldi, the Mason Garibaldi, uh, invaded Rome, right? Forcibly dispersed the council, Vatican I. Vatican I was never ended. There was no formal end to the First Vatican Council because it was dispersed as the Masonic uh, armies were approaching Rome to lay siege to Rome and to take Rome, Ten, and which they succeeded in doing, in fact. And uh, that's where the, the Pope became, from that point, a prisoner of the Vatican. The Vatican was the holdout where the Pope had security. He was surrounded by Rome, which was up to that, the, the, the Masonic taker of, takeover of Rome, was actually the kingdom of the Pope. The Pope was actually the king of that country. So what the Masonic legions were doing was... They were taking away the marches and the entirety of the Papal States and leaving the Pope uh, basically holed up in the castle, in the keep, basically, uh, the Vatican. That's essentially what it was. It was like the castle and the keep, and, and the enemy had completely engulfed his entire kingdom, but he had not taken that. And so the Pope became a prisoner in that. And he was a prisoner there from 1870 until 1929, with the Lateran Treaty of Pius XI, right, Gaspari, uh, Mussolini, right, and that is when uh, the Italian state, uh, as it were, paid for the, the, the land, the kingdom that they had taken, that the Masons had taken from the Pope. And uh, through Gaspari, the Secretary of State, Pope Pius XI agreed to that, okay, so there was a formal agreement leaving uh, the Pope as a kingdom, the Vatican City, and basically the patriarchal basilicas and certain other holy sites around the city, right? Um, to this day, when one enters Vatican City, one is leaving Italy and entering a sovereign state, the Vatican. Okay, to this day, as a result of that Lateran Treaty of 1929. When that prayer was written in the 1980s, you're talking about it a decade after the Freemasons had taken Rome away. Pope Leo XIII is talking about Rome. He's talking about they've set up the throne of their abominable impiety. It was past tense because they had taken the city of Rome. And that was the Sea of Peter. Rome was the city of Peter. Vatican City is not, is not the Sea of Peter. Rome, the city of Rome, is actually the Sea of Peter that is the seat of his diocese. And so, in, in taking Rome, in seizing the residence of the Pope, the Quirinale, in, in seizing the, the Lateran, St. John Lateran and so on, <coughs> they had set up the government of their Masonic, their Masonic conspiracy right there in Rome. And that's what he's saying, that they had succeeded in doing. He's not saying, though, what evidently our author is interpreting that they had already succeeded in setting up uh, the power of the Masons in the Holy See itself and taking control of the papacy. They still had not succeeded in taking control of the papacy. That was their initial intent, but they didn't succeed in 1869 and 1870 because the Pope still remained at large and out of their control. Would you say they, they have succeeded now? I would say they definitely have succeeded now. No doubt about it. They have definitely succeeded in their plans to have uh, secure the election of someone who thinks exactly as they do and who honors their wishes and fulfills their, their wishes with regard to the church, carrying out their plan, whether consciously or unconsciously, deliberately or not deliberately, it doesn't matter. Remember when when Nubius wrote the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, he said, we need to secure a pope according to our designs, but make sure he's not part of our plans, because he could expose the plan at any moment and ruin everything. 
So we need to secure a Pope, even a Pope, but just a Pope who thinks like we do. And we need to, to prepare a generation. We have to, he says it's the work of generations to prepare generation after generation, to prepare a generation which will produce a man who could become such a Pope. Who will have to work their way through the seminaries and work their way through the parishes and so on, work their way up in the church to get to the point where they would be elected and chosen. Um, remember Belladad, the female attorney from Italy, who uh, apostatized from the Catholic Church, became a communist agent here in this country, working with the labor unions as an attorney. This is back in the 20s and 30s. Belladad converted back to her faith, largely through the influence of, of uh, Bishop Sheen, actually, rejecting communism. But she also saw the contradictions in communism, that they were liars, that they did not care about the common working man at all. All they cared about was the party, the party, the party, the Communist Party and its power. And so she converted back to the Catholic faith and she exposed the workings of the communists in this country and around the world. She testified before the House Committee on Un-American Activities that she was involved in the recruiting of 1,100, 1,100 men to enter the Catholic seminaries and become priests as agents of the Kremlin, agents of the Communist Party, USSR. Um, she said that, she testified that under oath before the House Committee on America, American Activities here in the United States of America. Uh, 1,100 that she was aware of, you know. That's one person, okay, who, who could bring that testimony. So, um, yes, I do believe they have definitely uh, succeeded in their plan to secure a Pope according to their designs, who would deceive the Catholic people worldwide. What did Nubia say there? He said, they will think that they're marching in procession behind the cross and the banner, and the tiara leading them, that it's a Catholic. But he says, in fact, it will be our revolution. They will be following us. And he said, if we secure a pope according to our wishes, it will take only the movement of a little finger of that pope to set on fire the four corners of the world with revolution. This is the revolution en permanence, as he says, the permanent ongoing revolution. It is the suborning of the Catholic Church. And this is what Nubia said. So, you see what has happened now, after Vatican II, uh, in, during Vatican II and its aftermath, and now we have this Francis, and I think this is exactly what's playing out right now. There's a book that appeared not long ago by uh, a man named Taylor Marshall called Infiltration, and it's uh, drawn a lot of attention, a lot of fire, a lot of information, but these are things we've been pointing out to people for decades now that he has just put together and put before people and now they're, they're discovering that, my goodness, infiltration, the church has been infiltrated as though this is some new novel idea. But the ideal was actually not only floated, it was, it was mapped out by the head of the Freemasons in Italy back in the early 1800s, yeah. over 200 years ago. So, uh, at least some of the information is getting out there. I mean, for the, the merits or demerits of the book, I don't know. Some dear soul just sent me a copy of it today. I just received a copy, my first, my first copy of the, of the book today. But <laughs> again, it appears simply to be um, bringing up things that we've been saying for, for many years now about what's happening to the church. Okay. The fact that more and more people are being informed about it, that's good. Okay. But once they're informed about it, they have to decide what to do about it. And that's the question now that remains hanging in the balance. What will they do about that? Will they return to accepting the traditional Catholic faith and practicing it with a traditional Catholic religion and refuse modernism and refuse the Masons and their modernistic plans? Let us hope and pray that they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is ultimately entirely about the love of God, the love of God for us and our love for him. It's entirely about that, right? That's, that's the bottom line of it all, right? It's a matter of uh, being faithful. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, or what it said. So the decisions that we make now, I mean, the information itself is not enough. There has to be a love for God to respond to that, to rise up about that and say, I, I will do the will of God in this. And I, I see now clearly the will of God is the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion. This is what Christ established, and I will be faithful to that unto death. 
This is the response that we have to hope from people. For that, we have to pray that they have the graces necessary to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, let's end with that. We uh, we got through a lot tonight. You know, there's still a lot a lot left on our plate, but uh, perhaps we can down to fifty five. Something 50, like that. Yeah. So okay. There is still hope. Okay. Can, uh, okay. Get through them. So we'll continue to work on that. But, uh, right. Father, just real quick before we close tonight, I just wanted to remind our viewers about our website, mm-hmm. uh, wcbohio.com. Mm-hmm. We've uh, we've put a lot of effort into that website. There's a lot of great material on there. Um, a, a lot of your writings have been been posted on there. The, the writings that you do put in the the bulletin uh, every week here at Immaculate Conception, mm-hmm. those are, are posted on the website as they come out. Uh, so there's quite a, a collection of those on there now. Also, every day on the website, we post the, the readings of the Mass of the day and also the Saint of the day taken from uh, Father Butler's Lives mm-hmm. of the Saints. And these are very, very Catholic Practices uh, mm-hmm. to to read the the, the saint of the day mm-hmm. and, and and also the the mass readings. I think that's a something great that uh, that someone can do every day. Especially right. you know we get so many so many viewers who who don't have access to a to a that's traditional right. mass and. I think that's one great. We're looking to live stream the mass. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We're we're getting getting very close to that. Uh, and Father Alban Butler is. Uh, we're not talking about the the revised. We're talking about the traditional. Yes. The revised is by Atwater. That's modernized. Right. The traditional yes. Alvin Butler's mm-hmm. Lives of the Saints. It's very good mm-hmm. to have that. Yeah, and, and all yeah. of our uh, all of our what Catholics believe videos are posted on there as mm-hmm. they come out. We also have uh, all of the sermons, uh, not only from here in mm-hmm. Cincinnati, but also many sermons from from Cleveland and, and Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, even a lot of Father Skirky sermons from Montana. Mm-hmm. And, and might I suggest that our, our viewers, uh, when they see these sermons, should pass them on. I mean, yes, they definitely. should post them to their friends, to their email mm-hmm. connections, and so on, mm-hmm. and uh, get them out there because uh, you know you just never know what. Someone might see that might ring a chord with them and make a difference. So exactly. please don't just sit on them mm-hmm. and say, oh, okay, well, that was kind of interesting, and then go <laughs> your way. You should be a, a kind of an apostle in your own right and, and pass these things on. By the way, in connection with this also, Tom, I, I want to uh, take the opportunity to thank our, uh, our viewers for their help with the Christmas appeal. Yes. Here at Immaculate Conception, we have... The church and the school and the rosary procession, which we just had and through downtown Cincinnati and so many other other programs that uh, uh, have a, a, a wide reach for the traditional Catholic faithful. And so when we have a Christmas appeal that is the single greatest fundraiser we have, uh, we really depend upon that. And a number of our what Catholics believe viewers have supported us in that. It's very, very much appreciated. Yes, definitely. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for everything you do. I appreciate it. Um, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, too. No problem. God bless you all. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.